0: From the Palmetto Family Podcast Network, this is South Carolina Connections with Corey Truax. Welcome into this edition of South Carolina Connections with Corey Truax. Glad to have you with us on the show. Let me quickly point you over to palmettofamily.org, palmettofamily.org, where you can find every episode of this show, South Carolina Connections, but also the shows of Josh Putnam and Eric Corcoran, and truly for Eric. There's some fun stuff over there, guys. There's some fun conversations with with leaders in the state of South Carolina, and they are uh, their story of faith. And so go over and find those shows uh, they're certainly helpful. And then just generally, Palmetto Family does a good job of, what does that word Curating. They curate the stories that would be important to you. If you come from a religious perspective into the political and cultural realm and you want to stay updated on what's going on in the world and what resources you have available to you, PalmettoFamily.org is a fantastic place to do that. As I mentioned, my name is Corey Truax. Among many other things, I am the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets in Greenville, South Carolina at 1030. If you're in the upstate of South Carolina and without a church home, you're cordially invited to be to a church, 10.30, Sunday mornings. Also, I'm the host of The Corey Truax Show. That broadcast on WLFJ 92.9 FM. When is that? Saturday morning. Saturday morning at 8.30, or excuse me, 8 o'clock. I think of it more of a podcast, because wherever you're getting this podcast, you can also get my show, The Corey Truax Show. Uh, So if after 30 minutes of me, you think, you know, I could use 50 more minutes of that guy. Well, you can go find that. Just look for the Corey Truax Show. Now, on today's show, I want to get to a couple things. Uh, Mostly, I just returned from the Southern Baptist Convention in Birmingham, Alabama. I go to that every year. And here on South Carolina Connections with Corey Truax, one of the things we do is we take a look at events and decisions made nationally and see how they affect those of us here in South Carolina and our families. And sometimes those those decisions aren't just governmental. The same way in the, in the last episode, we found that the decisions being made by social media companies affect us. Well, also there's decisions by churches and denominations that are significant to South Carolina and her families. So I want to give you a report from that convention and some of the things we learned there. And then you, if you traffic in... Conservative media circles, you've probably already seen this Sophie Lewis audio or this Sophie Lewis video where she is giving a very full throated defense of abortion. I want to go through that probably line by line if we have time. Uh, so that is the goal on the show today. My big theme I say that over on The Corey Truax Show and here on South Carolina Connections, we are dedicated to smarter, deeper, better talk about everything. And that's what we're going to do today because there is plenty of talk out there that's not trying to make you smarter, it's not trying to make you deeper, and it's not better. It tends to make us uh, just just tell us why we're right about everything and doesn't actually challenge and teach, so that's what we're going to try to do today. So let's start here. When when the Southern Baptists got together in Birmingham this week, there was a resolution presented to the over 10,000 Baptists that showed up, Southern Baptists, regarding something called intersectionality and, uh, what is that called, critical race theory. Intersectionality and critical race theory. I think it is important for the American conservative, the American religious person, Christian person, to make sure we understand the terms that are floating around and the concepts floating around in the culture. So let me first identify the terms. I will tell you the resolution in just a moment. Intersectionality comes from academia. There was a woman, I can't remember the university, that coined the term about 20 years ago, but it's really only in the last few years gained a great deal of popularity on American college campuses, where the, uh, the concept is just this. You, whoever you are listening right now, you are not an individual. You are not yourself. Your identity is the groups into which you fit. And so, we'll take me. I am white, uh, male, heterosexual, Christian. And so I'm not Corey Truax. I'm not an individual with my own experiences and my own my own intellect and my own thoughts and my own opinions. I am only my groups. And so I I'm just a white male Christian heterosexual and so that makes me in their in their world an oppressor. And the, so intersectionality becomes for every point of intersection uh, of your uh, of a group you might be in that's been oppressed. You, you become high, of higher value, and we should listen to you more and value you more. And so if, if someone is like me, h- heterosexual, Christian, male, and is black, well, they, they have one intersectionality point. According to these folks, uh, they have one thing where they've been oppressed. Black people have been oppressed, and therefore we need to listen to that person more. But if, that, uh, if that's a woman, Who's African American, but then also says she's a Christian and uh, heterosexual. Now, now she's got two two intersectionality points, and so where her where her blackness meets her womanness, she gets more intersectionality points, and that continues on for sexual orientation, uh, immigrant status, disability, and so you can have all these points of intersectionality where you have more importance in the culture based on your victim status and how many ways and types of oppression you are under. That is what intersectionality is and that's a great deal related to what critical race theory is that we look we look at the world through the lens of race. So the Southern Baptist Convention gets together and votes on and affirms a resolution that says this in summary. It's long. You can go find it. It's on sbc.net. That's Southern Baptist Convention website. You can also just get in touch with me if you want. Show at gmail.com. Show at gmail.com. I, I have the resolution book. I voted for the thing. I can send you pictures or something like that if, if you're so inclined to see what we voted on. Uh, but again, it's out there. It's sbc.net. Where it says this. We affirm that these things are important. We affirm that seeing the historic experience of people groups that has some value to it, and we we believe that that's that's true. It is valuable to recognize that my experience as a white heterosexual Christian male with, and I tell you, one of the biggest advantages I have I found in my adult years is simply two parent household. That was another privilege I had. Compared to, uh, you know, one of my best friends is a African-American guy who grew up in a single-parent household uh, that he, he grew up in a different world than I did. We're almost the same age and grew, uh, at least for our teen years, grew up in the same place. But we had fundamentally different experiences because we come from different backgrounds. And so it is okay, it's useful to recognize that, but we subjugate... That idea, we subjugate this idea of understanding everyone's different experiences. We subjugate that to identity in Christian thinking, identity in the gospel, and so t- two big things we affirmed, and that f- for a Christian thinker, as we're working in this world, that I tell you at the, at the university level and in the, the media level, this intersectionality thing is is huge. Maybe you've you've heard that, maybe you had it happen to you on the internet where. You would give out an opinion or a thought, and someone says, "Well, you're just a white lady, you're just a white male. So you know, who cares what you think? You, know, you don't have the intersectionality. It's important for us to think to know where they're coming from, and then have the Christian perspective on these two items. So one is, coming from a Christian perspective, people are individuals. So I, you never look at anybody, never look at anybody and put them in a group. You never decide to look at someone and say, all right, well, they're a Hispanic person, so I'm going to put them in this group. They probably like this, dislike this, and think about this. Or you look at a person from any kind of racial group, sexual orientation group, and assume, assume things of anybody. This is unhelpful when folks on the secular left do it, when they say, old white guys, and they talk about old white guys as a group. Well, you know, old white guys are just people. They're individuals. And they all have their different experiences, and they all have their different thoughts. But equally... If you're somebody who talks about any racial group as a group or any, uh, any uh, tr- transgender group or any sexuality group and you talk about them as one big group, that's not an okay Christian thing to do either because everybody is an individual. And so while it is valuable to know the, the systems the world is using in evaluation— we do believe from the Christian perspective that every individual is made in the image of God and is therefore individually significant without having to know the group into which they fit. So that is one way in which we say, fine, intersectionality exists, we want to understand it, but it is below the gospel. But then second, that the problems that folks who are into intersectionality and critical race theory are trying to solve. The problems of oppression or discrimination, those problems can have some solution out in a secular world with understanding those categories of intersectionality, but that the actual solution to racism and discrimination and strife between people groups, the actual solution is the gospel, The actual solution is changing the hearts of people, not just changing the structures of society. And so I want you to know that happened, that we went out to Birmingham and declared those two things, that as a secular world is giving us intersectionality as a solution, we went as Southern Baptist. I am part of a Southern Baptist church. I'm an elder in a Southern Baptist church and declared those two things. Ultimately, this can't fix us. It will have to be changing people's hearts. We believe the way you change people's hearts is through the gospel. That's what will fix any kind of strife among people people groups. Uh, and then people should be individuals. We judge people as individuals. We don't judge them as part of groups. That was one big thing from the Southern Baptist Convention, and here's one more I wanted to give you. Back in February, if you somehow missed it, the Houston Chronicle published a long story detailing with a lot of credibility and i got to tell you, the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention did a fantastic job of not trying to fight the narrative. They they accepted the very good work the Houston Chronicle did. And that Houston Chronicle story detailed a great deal of sexual misconduct and sexual abuse by Southern Baptist church leaders. I read the story and I couldn't—I vacillated so much between anger and sadness and anger and sadness with people who— especially through the 70s and 80s, even before that. Men who knew that there was a natural trust of them, that they were coming to a situation where people just naturally trust you because you have pastor on your name, and they used the natural trust people gave them to violate people. And so the Southern Baptist Convention came together in June after that story breaks in February, this long history of sexual abuse, and really did, just did a fantastic job of fessing up to it, not trying to hide it, not trying to minimize it, not trying to mitigate it, not trying to say, well, you know, it was only this many people. We have 15 million Southern Baptists, so if it was only 100 people, I mean, really, who? I mean, you, you, we care, but it's not that big of a problem. Uh, no, J, J.D. Greer, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, did a great job of saying one is too many. One going unreported, one time that a youth pastor uh, is sending pornographic pictures to a young girl in his youth group and he's removed from this church and then just moves on to a new church and those two churches didn't communicate when that happens one time it's one time too many that was the that was the way it should have been handled and we did handle it that way southern baptist we actually spent a time of just lament and repent and repentance for what's happened at southern baptist convention surrounding sexual abuse and then took some other actions and you should know Uh, We've published something called "Becoming a Church That Cares Well for the Abused." Becoming a church that cares well for the abused—you can get a free copy digitally at sbc.net. And it also outlines very practical steps on how to be a church that tries to uh, sets up structures to protect people from being abused, but then also has solutions for when things go down. uh, How we go about. Addressing it, I'll just give you just one example. It's really clear that in churches in the past, when there has been sexual misconduct, the idea has been to just move a pastor along, move a youth pastor along, maybe remove them from the church, but not get the civil authorities involved. But that's gonna that's not gonna work anymore for a church to be part of the Southern Baptist Convention and operate that way. When someone has broken the law, the civil authorities, as the Bible declares are there to punish evil and reward good. And so I want you to know, the largest Christian denomination in the United States of America, 15 million Southern Baptists go to church about that on Sundays. They they got it. They, we, we get it. We understand what we did wrong, and we are working towards it. And so uh, that, that meeting was otherwise one of the more peaceful Southern Baptist conventions I've ever been to. And so uh, I'm thankful for that, grateful to the Lord for the work happening there. And so uh, there you go. That's uh, the decisions being made on the national level and how they might affect you and your church going forward. Before we get into this audio from Sophie Lewis, I do want to point you one more time to palmettofamily.org, palmettofamily.org, where you can find lots of good news content and the the podcast of Eric Corcoran and of Josh Putnam. But additionally, I always want to remind you, there is this trip coming up where we are taking pastors to Washington, D.C. We really could use your help in offsetting the cost of making that happen. So you can find more information at palmettofamily.org, palmettofamily.org. We could use your generosity at any level you can afford. You're listening to South Carolina Connections with Corey Truax, and here's what we're going to do, likely for the rest of our time. Out in conservative media, this video has gone somewhat viral on on most radio shows. Uh, I want to give you my take on it as well. So uh, Sophie Lewis is a feminist activist, feminist scholar uh, in Britain, and she is very upset about the state of abortion right now. And so she has uh, a uh, an interview here that is disturbing, I would say. And so I want to play that for you now. We're going to stop, uh, start it and stop it as she says things I want to respond to, and we're going to get through as much of it as we can. So here is Sophie Lewis, feminist, activist, and scholar talking about her pro-abortion position.
1: We have very little to lose at the moment when it comes to abortion, and I'm interested in winning radically. And I wonder if we could think about defending abortion as a right to stop doing gestational work.
0: So if you miss that, here is her, what she's saying. She's disturbed at the pro-life winning the victories that have happened here lately. I'm very encouraged by them. She's disturbed by them. And so she has a new strategy. This has nothing to do with true or false. All she's thought of is, maybe here's a strategy to defend the thing that I love. She loves abortion. She loves the killing of the unborn, and she wants to defend it. And her new strategy is, well, maybe we should think about it as gestational work. That a woman is essentially being enslaved to growing a child. Now, of course, two things on this. One, this is a job that 99% of times a woman chooses. You know, When we, we talk about the abortion debate, about 1% of abortions are, are because of rape or a little less. Now, that's like 6,000 people every year, and so that matters. I need, I need you to feel that really quickly. That is 6,000 women who will never be the same. It may only be 1%, but those women are real. Their trauma is real. And as angry and as emotional as we might get around those who would discard a living child, we need to make sure that we are people that are also full of empathy and compassion for a woman who has had her dignity taken from her. And talk about that woman with honor not just with the shame of what she might do with the product of her rape, but talk about that Talk about that woman with all of the integrity and honor that she deserves. But in that vein, where, and also by the way, she should also get justice. One of the ways in which you can show that you don't just care about unborn children is that when this woman is grown and raped, that you demand justice for her that the punishments that we give ra- rapists are really harsh. You can show your your love for both people in the situation. I think sometimes we fail to show love to both people. When there's a woman who was raped and she's pregnant, we show the exact love we should towards the unborn. I'm never going to f- apologize, and you should never apologize, for showing love of the unborn and wanting to defend the lives of the unborn. That's something we absolutely should be doing. But then sometimes we don't show enough love to that woman. And we need to be people who show, all. there's three people involved. There's the rapist, the victim, and the child. Well, we can show contempt and demand justice be served on the rapist. We can show compassion and understanding for the fear and the trauma of that woman and desire to save the life of that child, all three of those can be held at the same time, and they should be voiced all with the same vigor and enthusiasm. Now, but what her argument here is that a woman is uh, being forced to get to literally labor. You know, labor is the word we end up using in relation to pregnancy. That a woman should be is being forced to it uh, to to work, and so she's doing gestational work, and so someone is being enslaved. Well. That's not really how it works if, if a woman doesn't want to be pregnant. She has all kinds of options. For example, don't have sex with someone you don't want to have a kid with. And at the very least, don't have unprotected sex with, with a guy you don't want to have a kid with or when you don't want to be having a child. Uh, so this is a, this is a job she took. Right, this wasn't a job that was foisted upon her, except in the case of rape, which is so rare. So that's the first point from Sophie Turner. It is not a good one. But she's again just having a strategy. She wants to know, how can I save abortion? Well, can we save it by making, it a jo- by making pregnancy a job?
1: Abortion is, in my opinion, um, and I recognize how controversial this is, um, a form of killing. It is a- it's not a form of killing.
0: It is killing. And I but though, very much appreciate, I mean this, I appreciate her saying so and acknowledging it. Acknowledge what we're doing. There was one of my favorite uh, columns ever, really. I think it was 2011. A woman wrote in Slate, I think it was. uh, The title of the column was, of course, abortion ends a human life, but that doesn't matter. And so she just straight says, yeah, I know. Yeah, we're killing a human, but a woman's autonomy just matters more. So we can kill the human. It's a horrible, immoral thing she said, but at least she came with some moral clarity. And now here's Sophie Lewis admitting, yeah, we're killing. Let's do away with all this nonsense about a clump of cells. Now we're killing a human every time there is an abortion.
1: It's a, a form of um, killing that uh, we need to be able to defend. Um, I am not interested in where a human life starts to... Um, exist. Um, I see the forms of making and unmaking each other as sort of continuous processes. Um, The other end of the spectrum is the process of learning how to die well and hold each other and let each other go at the end of our lives as well as at the beginning.
0: She says she has no interest there of when a life begins, when a life begins to exist really genuinely here, nothing else matters. I wonder if I wonder if Sophie Lewis gets this. If pro-lifers did not think life began in the womb, none of us care. Why on earth would we care if what was in the womb was like your gallbladder? We don't care if you get your gallbladder taken out. And if what was in the womb was some... had the moral equivalency of just an extra organ, yeah, take it out. Who cares? So all that matters is when life begins to exist. And life begins to exist, I say at conception or implantation, at the very least, how about a heartbeat, which happens so early on, they would eliminate all abortions. The fact that she again, uh, there's moral clarity, though. The fact that she says, I'm not concerned when a life begins. It shows the moral bankruptcy of the pro-abortion position.
1: Um, but looking at the biology of this kind of hemochorial placentation helps me think about um, the violence that innocently a fetus meets out um, vis-a-vis a gestator. Um, and that violence is, is an unacceptable violence for someone who doesn't want to do gestational work you get her argument
0: the baby is doing violence to the woman enslaving the woman again vast majority of pregnancies happen totally at your discretion and they were present- you they were preventable and if you did not prevent it your mistake does not does not give you the moral license to kill. Right? So she at least again provides moral clarity. She's just she's calling natural biological processes that again were totally preventable if she wanted to prevent them a job, a slavery, and the a baby that's doing violence. Certainly carrying a child, I mean, I've seen it in the women of my life, doesn't seem easy. But to call it violence is making up a new definition of that word.
1: Here's the last little bit from Sophie Turner. Um, The violence that that gestator meets out to essentially go on strike or exit (laughs) that that workplace is an acceptable violence.
0: So her point is it's an acceptable thing to do uh, because you're just getting rid of someone who is enslaving you when a woman when a woman has an abortion, she's doing away with someone who has done her violence. I said Sophie Turner. I think I meant Sophie Lewis. That is the name. So it's at least it's at least important for you to know that that's an argument that's out there. At the same time, I think I bring that to you primarily because of this. They, the folks in the pro-abortion side, they are worried because there's progress here, not just in the laws. There's progress in that Georgia law. There's progress in the Alabama law and the Ohio law. There is progress in the laws to defend the unborn. But there's progress culturally. The more people are exposed to ultrasounds and the more people are exposed to these, to the science around what, what I just, for example, I just saw one here recently that, You you see these stories on Facebook that shows this this child born at 22 weeks, born less than a pound. Here he is, here she is a year later, total health, and everything's fine. You start seeing more of these stories of a child, 24 weeks, 25, 26 weeks, has some kind of heart defect. Well, we're just going to open the mother's womb, take the child partially out, cut the baby's chest open, fix their heart, and put them back. We see all of that, and culturally, there is something happening. Folks are recognizing the irrational nature of their position. That, of course, what is in the womb is human. And, of course, what is in the womb is a person. I think we're going to see that even further with my generation and younger. With the, the cognitive dissonance of defining a human by their desirability. I mean, we do live in this world where, in the Instagram and Pinterest and Facebook world, where if you want the baby, if the baby is desired, it's the most liked or responded to Facebook, Instagram post you could ever have. People that usually have like 50, 60 responses to a post, when I see they posted that they're pregnant and they want it to be, 500 people show up to say congratulations. We do parties for gender reveals, where there's all kinds of really creative ways people show you whether they're, they're they're having a boy or a girl. And what's the difference between that child 20 weeks, 25 weeks for I don't know when you find out the gender, let's just call it 20 weeks. What's the difference between the child at 20 weeks where we are going to have a big party about whether or not they're boy or a girl and the child at 18 weeks that mom's going to an abortion clinic and killing or a, an abortion doctor, we're going to call him that, is killing? no no no, no real difference desirability. It's just whether or not that kid is wanted. Listen, I, I know kids who are unwanted. I know adults who are unwanted as kids. A lot of their lives are hard. But they are still lives. And they still matter. This is what having a consistent pro-life ethic means. A consistent pro-life ethic Looks at the unborn and says, "You deserve to live." It looks at the undesired child and says, "You deserve still to live." It looks at the ch- the children all over, even all over the world. Not that not that you have an obligation as an I'm not trying trying to say what some people say. If, as an American taxpayer, you have an obligation to save all the children of the world. But as a Christian thinker, that you do care that there are kids in poverty in Mexico, and you want to try to help and. Uh, it's in, I, I say Mexico because they are our nearest neighbor, but all over the world, and you want to try to do something to alleviate suffering because you're consistently pro life. That we're consistently pro life, and how we talk about people. You know, I, I noticed here recently with some folks my age and how they were talking about older people, and these are these folks are call themselves pro life, and the way that the 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 insensitivity with which they were talking about older folks was. Wasn't I mean, I would call it insane. It was at least a cognitive dissonance. You say that you're all about life. You say that you value human life, but you're not talking about that particular human life with any honor. And so all, I give you all a Sophie Lewis to come around to this point. Let us be a people the way we talk about people and the way we talk about the issue of abortion, the way we talk about the people who are pro-abortion, the, even the way we talk about Sophie Lewis— and the the women who are struggling with the decision on whether or not they're going to have an abortion. We need to be the folks that talk about everyone with honor and everyone with a consistent pro-life ethic, and that we're consistent with every other policy decision along the way, but for the moment as well. How about we celebrate a little bit? I don't think we do that enough. We don't celebrate when good things happen, and right now is a very good pro-life moment. So celebrate and be thankful for that. You can get more from me at The Cory Truax Show, Coreytruax.com. You can also find a whole lot more of awesome stuff from Palmetto Family at palmettofamily.org. We'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.